Good evening again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 17. We'll be in Genesis chapter 17 tonight. And if you don't have a Bible, we've placed them under the chair so that you can kind of follow along. Uh, and uh, you're even welcome to take that if you don't have one at home. We'll be on page 12 in that Bible. This summer, we've been going through a series in Genesis called Father Abraham. Uh, and we have not sang the children's song, sorry. But we are studying how Abraham is the father of faith. And when we look at the life of Abraham in Genesis, we see what it looks like to be struggling people, real people in the real world, struggling to trust God and to trust in his power. This week, we're calling it drastic measures. And we are going to look at the drastic measures that God is willing to go to, uh, to show us that we can trust him, to show his power, uh, to uh, encourage us to depend on him. Uh, I was uh, thinking about these drastic measures and... About 23 years ago, actually exactly, I shouldn't say about, exactly 23 years ago, my wife and I took some big steps in our relationship. About 25 years ago, we'd started dating, uh, and we liked each other a lot. I thought she was really cute, right? Um, She was a godly woman, was very attracted to her, decided not only did I like her, but I liked her, liked her, if you know what I mean, and uh, moved from liking her to liking, liking her, and from there decided that I would buy a very expensive ring and ask her to marry me. So exactly 23 years ago today, we took the drastic measures of making vows and promises to each other, of getting each other these rings and of making promises before God and before witnesses and making what we would call a covenant, right? We've talked about covenants before. In the Old Testament, covenants happened a lot. Covenants are how God would reveal himself to us as he would make agreements. He would build relationships with people. And a covenant is basically a relational promise that is bound by great seriousness, uh, consequences, oaths, ceremony. So it's taking something like a contract or like a promise or like a relationship, but kind of wrapping it in, in a greater weightiness. And that's what we see in Old Testament covenants. And we see in today's passage, God taking a covenant really that he'd already made and making it more serious, going deeper with Abraham and Sarah, telling them, I'm really, I'm really serious about this. I am really going to do this. I already made the covenant. I already made these promises. But now we're going to give you additional covenant signs and seals. In marriage, we have covenant signs often in our country. This is different culture by culture, but we'll use wedding rings, right? So these are additional signs. They're promises that are made, they're explanations that are made, they're ceremonies that are gone through, and that's what we'll see in today's passage as well. If y'all were with us a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 15, that's really where the covenant stuff started uh, very strongly with Abraham, and I'd encourage you, if you missed that, to go back and listen to the recording or go back and at least reread Genesis 15. But we're going to read chapter 17. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 8 to kind of get us started, and then we'll look at some more of the other verses as we move on. Starting in verse 1, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, yes, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, 
And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. These are promises God has already made to Abraham, already made to his people. These are promises that we'll hear God making again and again throughout the scriptures. But here again, there's an added seriousness, a a going deeper that we see taking place uh, in this covenant that God's making with his people. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us because we've got all kinds of interesting things to cover today, like circumcision, all kinds of fun stuff. So um, I'm going to need God's help, and I think probably you need God's help as well to hear this and understand this. So let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We believe that because you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus. You've shown us your willingness uh, to go so far in your love for us. We pray that your spirit would meet us here. Pray for myself that you would help me to be clear uh, as we unpack your word. And I pray for your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us receive. I know we're all coming in here from different places, Lord. There's different things we need to learn, but your word speaks to us. It's living and active. And we pray that it would take action in our lives. We ask that you would meet us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at the story unfolding, just kind of a, a contextual note, chapter 17 is a long chapter, it's 27 verses. It's kind of a repetitious format. So you've got a, a format that flows for the first half of the section, and then it kind of repeats itself. So we get some added details um, in the second half of the chapter, and I will actually read those other details. But just so you know, it's kind of go through a flow. My outline kind of follows the first 15 verses. And then he kind of repeats himself again, and I'll, I'll pull those verses in. So we'll, it'll seem at points like we're going out of order, but we're, it's kind of a cycle, the way the chapters are unfolded. The, the first thing that I think we see as we look at the drastic measures that God is willing to go to, to bring us into trusting him and relying on him, is that his power is foremost. And so the first thing that we hit in verse 1 is God's power. Uh, that Abraham's life, Abraham's story, Genesis, we could say the whole Bible, it's really starts with this importance and the preeminence of God's power. But it's not about Abraham's power, but it's about God's power. And I would confess to you, and I think many of you are this way as well, we often want our lives to be about our power, right? We often want our lives to be about how great we are, how smart we are, how beautiful we are, how strong we are, whatever it might be. But really, the point of our lives is God's glory and God's greatness. And we have a derivative, like a secondary glory. We have a secondary power that grows out of us being made in God's image. But we have to start with his power. And that's where verse 1 starts. When you look at verse 1, we kind of get it uh, in the context of verse 1, and then we get it in the explicit words of verse 1 as well. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is uh, how old Abraham is. Did anybody catch that? How old is Abraham? 99. Yeah, you caught it because it's weird, right? That's crazy. How many, any of you 99? Do we have any 99-year-olds? I don't see. I'm scanning the crowd. I don't think so. Um, That's unusual, and I'm not going to pick too hard on 99-year-olds. I think that's an awesome, beautiful thing. If you make it that far, I hope I make it that far, but it's unusual, right? We just don't see, people don't usually live that long. That's old. Um, And not only do people not generally live that long, but they don't generally have kids that old either. I mean, that's some of the craziness of what's going on in the story here. So we, we want to not miss that. Abraham's 99 years old. Do you remember how old he was in the last chapter? I know half of y'all weren't even here last week, but anybody remember how old he was last chapter? He was 86 years old 
So we've got a 13-year gap now. He had the son through Hagar, Ishmael, when he was 86. I mean, that was already pretty old. And now he's waited 13 more years for God to show up. So we saw how contextually and just the way the story is written that they kind of figured out that what they had done was wrong, that they'd made a mistake by trying to grab hold of the reins of power and do it themselves with Hagar and have their own child. The story kind of got complicated. It went badly. We looked at that last week. Thirteen years later, God shows back up. That's a lot of waiting. Any of you ever uh, prayed for something and 13 years later there's a new development? That ever happened in your life? A lot of us have not even been Christians that long, right? A lot of us, some of you aren't even that old. He waited 13 years, not just from the original promise, which was years and years before that, but just since the last episode when he grabbed the reins and tried to do things by his own power. And he's waiting all this time. He's 99 years old. And it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, this is where it gets explicit or more clear, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And just as an aside, linguistically, blameless doesn't mean uh, never make a mistake, right? Because Abraham's he makes mistakes all over the place. He's going to make more mistakes in the stories. But it means be completely devoted. It means kind of like be all in. And so God's calling Abram. He's saying, trust me. Trust in my power. I am God Almighty. Linguistic note, some people that interpret this argue also about Almighty and what that means. I think it means Almighty. I think that's the best way to understand it. That's what most translations say. Uh, there's some argument, though, that it really means like God of the big big mountain, something like that. But contextually, we, we would take that and go, okay, well, this is what it's talking about, big and impressive, and uh, that's kind of the point. The word is El Shaddai. Any of you remember, those of you that are around in the 80s, there was a song, El Shaddai. Remember that? Yeah, some of you remember that. That's right. Um, so that's a Hebrew name of God. But again, the, the best we can understand is God Almighty, especially when we look at the context here and the other places where it's used. It's God showing up and saying, I'm sufficient. I'm enough. Do you trust me? I think that's one of the questions that the Holy Spirit is asking you right now and asking me as I'm preaching this and as you're hearing this is, do I trust him? Do I think he's enough? Do I think he's almighty? Do I think he can do it? Do I think he loves me? Do I think God is that big, that powerful, that loving? What what are your thoughts about who God is. I think that's one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves. God's power is often displayed um, when we go a long time not getting what we want, which sounds terrible. I hate, I hate even saying it, right? But often when, when things don't go the way we wanted them to, that, that forces us to come back to him and say, God, what are you up to? It forces us to pray. forces us to ask him questions. It forces us to Say, God, what do you really want in my life? Maybe what I wanted wasn't what you wanted. Forces us to ask all kinds of questions. And and I don't want to belittle whatever kind of suffering you are going through or you have gone through. I know sometimes you're not even ready to hear this kind of thing. Um, But but Paul discovered in 1 Corinthians as he asked God again and again, will you take this thorn? Will you take this thorn? He had this thorn in his flesh, something badgering him. God said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Trust me. Hold on. My power will be enough. A band I love just came out with a new album, Switchfoot, and they say the wound is where the light shines through. The the wound, right? The the difficulty, the weakness in our life. And so Abraham is learning that. And I would would guess the reason God's giving this to us at this time is that he, he wants us to learn this too. 
I think he wants me to learn this. I'm thinking he wants you to learn this as well. There, there are difficulties, there's waiting, there's I'm 99 years old, God, what are you doing? I mean, just this like, God, what is going on? And in that waiting, we learn to trust in his power. Last week, the previous chapter was Abraham saying, we can figure this, we can solve this problem on our own, and it went badly. And now God's coming back again saying, no, you can trust me. You can trust in my power, not trust in your own power. So I'd ask you to be praying about that. What, what is God, where, where am I trying to rely on my own power? Where do I need to be trusting in God's power instead of my own, my own strength and my own power? I want to read a little more of the detail here, looking at how Abram responds. So God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then what does Abraham do? Then Abram fell on his face. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Abram just fell on his face. So, again, I think this adds context. God already explicitly says, I'm God Almighty. Abram's 99 years old. Abram's falling on his face. Have you ever been to that point in your spiritual life? You're like, God, this is, this is taking a long time. Like, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope, right? And there's a lot of different ways we say that culturally, a lot of different phrases we use. I grabbed a picture of someone on their face, uh, there's a technical language for this. We say like someone's laying prostrate, right? It's the idea of like you're, you're just laid out praying on your face. Some of you may actually pray that way. Um, we are, our church kind of background is not as charismatic, but generally our charismatic brothers and sisters are a little better at displaying in their body what they believe to be true about God, right? We're, I come from a background where you're you know, kind of stiff and you don't move too much. Um, but trying to learn to obey God with my body a little bit more and my face and uh, on the outside, what I believe on the inside, this is one of the ways to do that, right? Uh, laying flat on your face is a way to say, God, you're all powerful and I'm not. I'm nothing. I'm powerless. A 99-year-old impotent man that couldn't accomplish his purposes in his life. But God says, trust me, I'll accomplish my purposes in your life. And so this is a way of expressing that before God, laying face down. Um, so I think one, one application is that we would actually try to begin to express with our bodies what we believe in our hearts. And I think we see that in Abram as he lays face down before God. I, I also think it's just an overall encouragement that we, like Father Abraham, remember he's the father of faith, and we don't imitate him when he sins, but I think we want to imitate him when he's faithful. And I think this is a picture of him being faithful. I, I think that we should... Uh, honestly express our exasperation with God uh, and in his power not being what we want it to be. Sometimes in your life, God's not achieving what you want him to achieve in the timing that you want him to achieve it. And I think we see this model in the Psalms. We see this model throughout Scripture. We see this model in Abraham's life. We see the freedom for us to say, God, what are you doing, right? We see exasperation. Like He's just like, I'm done. And so sometimes falling on your face is purposeful worship, right? I'm bowing down. I'm worshiping. You're great, God. Sometimes falling on your face is you're sobbing and you're in tears because you don't know what else to do, right? Like you're, you're just exasperated. You're done. And I would encourage you that, that that's an application as well. Not only that we would pray with our bodies and submit to God and his power by de- demonstrating that in, in bowing or kneeling, but that we would be honest with our hearts, Prayer is honestly talking to God and, my God, I don't know what you're doing. 
I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know why it's taking so long. I don't understand what's going on and being, being willing to be honest with God about that. And I think we see that in Abraham's life with him just falling on his face. We see more of this stuff later on. One more phrase I would throw out to you, and this is more of a negative term, hitting rock bottom. Any of you used that term before or heard that? I mean, you've all heard that term, right? Um, this is more of a ne- negative side of that. So um, hitting rock bottom is when you've been trying to depend on the power of something else to save you, right? So maybe you've been going to the bottle to save you. You've been trusting alcohol to numb and make everything feel better, right? And when you hit rock bottom is that place where you're like, this isn't working out. And you've, you know, figuratively fallen on your face because it's not saving you. This thing you thought would save you or at least make you feel better just isn't doing it. Maybe it's serial relationships, right? We see that a lot. It's like, well, maybe the next relationship will fix things. Maybe the next relationship will fix things. Maybe if I just find the right person, maybe if I just feel loved, everything's going to be okay. And you hit rock bottom and you recognize it's not, it's not working. So that would be another thing I would ask you to think about. Are there things, are there powers other than the God of the universe that you're running to, to save you, to comfort you, to help you, to numb you, whatever it may be, instead of trusting in God's power? And I think that's another way for us to think about this colliding with how big and how powerful God is and then us just falling on our face, right? Sometimes that's, that's us hitting rock bottom. My prayer for you and my prayer for me has been, God, show me what are those areas in my life? Like, un- help me uncover those where I'm not depending on you, uh, where I need to depend on you instead of depending on myself or these other uh, methods of salvation. The, the next thing that we see is they're given new names. And this is where you start to see the repeating pattern a little more clearly. We've got sections, uh, verses 5 through 8, and then verses 15 through 21. He gives Abraham a new name, and then he gives Sarah a new name, right? So it's kind of repetition of this theme of a new identity, a new name. And what I want us to really see in that section is that we don't get to name ourselves, right? We don't get to name ourselves. God gets to decide who we are. And for a lot of you, that's probably making you angry right now. Like, no, I get to decide who I am. Well, that's very American of you, but in reality, God gets to decide who you are. So, so let's look at verses, uh, it's 5 through 8 is the first section. 5 through 8 says it this way. It says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, in Hebrew that would be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, Abraham. And so it's a very slight change. It's uh, Ab, like Abba's father, right? So this is exalted father to father of multitudes, so very slight change. He's still named Daddy, which is kind of strange for a guy that hasn't been able to have kids until he was 86, right? And so that's a difficult name for him. And now God, in a sense, is piling on to what is probably very realistically a difficult name for Abraham to carry around and making it even bigger, right? It's like he's doubling down. He's saying, you're not just going to be exalted, Father. You're going to be Father of multitudes. That's your new name. So Abram's in the marketplace, and he's like, hi, how are you? I'm Abram. Wait, no, no, it's Abraham now. And the guy's like, show me your family. Well, I've got this 13-year-old kid that I had with my slave girl, and that's it. But God's telling me there's going to be more. There's going to be nations. There's going to be multitudes, and he's 99 years old. So God says, your name will now be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's where we pick up some of that repeated language. It's said again and again in the Bible, I'll be your God, and they'll 
be my people. That's the most repeated promise in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Again and again, that's who God says he's going to be for us. He's going to be our God. We're going to be his people. goes on and says, and I will give to you uh, and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So it's a repetition of that same concept again. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's what's told again and again to us. That's that's the mark of God's presence with us. Y'all remember uh, one of the titles that Jesus has given that we talk about at Christmas a lot of times? What's that title? Um, it's Emmanuel. Yeah, some of you know it. Emmanuel, and that means God with us. So Jesus, more than, than any other figure in the Bible, displays that, right? Like he lives out this promise, which is the most repeated promise in the Bible, that I will be your God and you'll be my people. And he says, and I'm going to send Jesus, and we're going to call him Emmanuel, which means his, his title, his role, his function is going to be the existence of God among us. And so we as God's people are the ones that have God for our God. We're not isolated anymore. It no longer is the story us being kicked out of Eden, but now we're reconciled back to God through Jesus. And, and all of these promises that Abraham doesn't even fully understand how all this is going to happen, all this is being made in this prom- promise to Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. I, I will live among you. I want to skip down and read the other verses as well. Verses 15 through 21 again repeats this idea of a new name. And verse 15, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, Sarah, shall be her new name. And so her name, the meaning doesn't change as much. They're really both variations of the word princess in Hebrew. So her name goes from princess to princessa or something you know it's not that much of a variation but still she's given a new name as well to reiterate that God is the one that does the naming God is the one that says this is who you will be this is your identity you will be my people you will be the people that displays my power and my grace in your life it goes on in verse 16 I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her not by Hagar by her I will bless her and she shall become Nations, kings of people shall come from her. And then we've got another reaction from Abraham again. It says, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So again, we see, I think, an encouragement for us to be honest. Obviously, it's never okay to be disrespectful, right? But there's a freedom we have as children of God to be like, God, for real? Like, is this, really? How is this going to work? There's a great honesty that Abraham and Sarah have before God. It's interesting that she laughs. And uh, any of you know what the son's name means? Any of you know what Isaac's name means? Anybody? He laughs, that's right. Son of laughter, he laughs. Some commentators like to say, uh, that it that it means God saying, I will get the last laugh, that that's what it actually means. Um, but yeah, it means something like laughter or son of laughter, or he laughs. So Abraham now says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Remember, he's got this 13-year-old that he had with the slave Hagar. And Hagar ran away because Sarah's mistreating her, but she went back and they seem to have worked things out and things are better, you know, they've patched things together and he's like saying, oh, we're, we're planning on all this stuff being fulfilled through Ishmael, God. I don't, I don't really want to have a baby at 100, right? I don't want to do it your way. Can't we do it this way? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
God said, no. God, sometimes we pray and God just says no, right? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. He laughs. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Again, play on words. Remember what Ishmael's name means? It means God hears. I've heard you. God hears. Behold, I've blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Again, he's saying, no, I'm going to do the naming. I get to decide how this is going to work. I will be your God. You will be my people. I decide your identity. And again, God is going to great lengths to show his grace and his power. When we step back and we look at the whole picture of Scripture, we see a God who again and again is showing us that we can't save ourselves, that we can't make ourselves to have a great name. We can't make ourselves the fathers and mothers of many, but God does that. God is the one who is at work in our lives. And so again and again, God is going to great lengths to show us that we have to trust him and his power. He's the one that names us. He's the one that tells us how we're going to live, what we're going to do. Earlier, the promise was given to him that they would inherit the land of Canaan. Uh, And I want to talk about that for just a minute without making that the main point of the section, but I have a map here that I wanted to show you, a world map. Any of you see the land of Canaan, the the land that uh, Abraham has promised to inherit there? Can you see it on the map? This is kind of an object lesson here because it's so small it's hard to see, right? Now, we need to have kind of a balance in our understanding of the promises, the land promises that God made to Abraham and to his people, Israel. Uh, And so on the map, Israel is at the crossroads, literally, of every ancient world empire that ever existed. And so if you had a world-dominating empire, you had to march through Israel, you had to march through the land of Canaan to get anywhere else that mattered. And so at one level, this tiny strip of land that you can't see because it's so small on the map right now, is the most influential piece of land in world history, which is really amazing, right? Like, think about it. If if you were God, and you were going to communicate with human beings, you would probably set up your kingdom at the middle of the most influential piece of land in the entire world, right? That kind of makes sense. And that's what God does. Those are the promises he makes. I also want you to see the world map to understand, though, um, that as we think about the promises and what may be future fulfillments to Israel, that we're promised something even bigger than the land of Canaan. So I'm kind of trying to diffuse what is often a debated item in Christian theology, and that is like, what's the role of Israel, and what role are you going to play in future world events, and what is God going to do with Israel, with that particular piece of real estate, and when is he going to do it, and how are the end times going to unfold? What I would like to do is kind of jump past that to the, to the future of the cosmos, right? To the end of the universe, and say, Romans 8 tells us that the entire world is groaning and longing for the sons of God to be revealed. Because the sons of God being revealed, God's sewing up all of history in his finishing of salvation means that all of creation is made right. We're looking forward to the whole thing being made right. We're looking forward to the whole world being healed. The vision that we get in Revelation is that the the new Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth 
and the earth is revived, it's healed, it's transformed, and it's heaven on earth. That, that somehow we're headed to a future that is creation as we know it. We'll, we'll be physical, we'll touch, we'll eat, right? We're not going to just be care bearers floating in space, right? But we will be real people that's shown to us in the resurrection of Jesus. You know, he ate barbecue again and again with his people to show us we'll still get to eat barbecue in heaven. But, but heaven is somehow earthly, and it's a transformation of the world. And so, again, I, I'm not saying that there's not these, these particular future promises yet to be fulfilled in the, the, the small place of Israel, but there's even greater stuff that we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to God wiping away every tear taking away all sin, making everything right, all injustices being healed and reversed. And we're looking forward to inheriting the whole world. The meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus made that promise. We're, we're looking forward to, to even more than just those promises. So we can, we can talk more about Israel, future events, world politics. I'd love to talk to you about that. I honestly don't know much about it. I just know God is faithful. We can trust him. And we're looking forward to inheriting everything. We're looking forward to God healing us, making all things right. That, that's what I look forward to. I I look forward to that day that that all evil is reversed and fixed. That's the inheritance that we look forward to. So, God gives us new names. My question for you is, do you know the new name that he gives you? Part of that is that inheritance, right? We're not just inheriting Israel, we're inheriting everything. We're inheriting the reversal of all injustice, the reversal of all evil. We're, We're inheriting perfection. We look forward to glory, seeing Jesus face to face. But also, right now, God promises us reconciled relationships, a a restored relationship with God as our Father, that we would know Him and we would know peace now. We don't have to wait for everything at the end of all time, right? We know forgiveness of sins now. We get to know what it is to be sons and daughters of God now. In 1 Peter 2, I didn't hear if Chris read this, I know we read it during one of the earlier morning worship services, but it, it says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the new identity that we have. So it's not just about Abraham and Sarah getting a new name, but, but God does that with his people. We, we all get new names. We were rebels, now we're forgiven, right? We were lost, but now we're found. We were orphans, now we're sons and daughters of the king. So we all, by faith, get new names, get new identities. My, my prayer for you is that you would know that, because that, that's life-changing. That's what enables us to live life with reckless abandon, to love other people, to serve other people, to step outside of ourself. If we don't have a name, we're always scrapping and fighting to find a name, to find a home, to find meaning. But if we know we've been given it from God, that gives us a place of security so that we can step out and serve others in love, to, to be the kingdom, to be this royal priesthood, to serve others as God designed us. But the last thing that we'll see as we move through this passage is the covenant signs. Now, this is the awkward part. We talk about circumcision a little bit. Um, a sign is a thing that signifies something, right? Like a sign is a pointer, an explainer, a visual aid that tells us about something. And so signs tell us about the covenant. Again, I would encourage you to look back at two chapters before. Genesis 15 is where the covenant happens. That's where we're told that God cut a covenant with Abraham. And just to retell that a little bit, in the covenant process, God reveals himself to Abraham the way that 
kings would make covenants with people in the normal way of the ancient Near East. And they would split apart animals, and they would walk through the blood, and they would say, uh, if we don't fulfill this covenant, this agreement, may it happen to us as has happened to these animals. But remember, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham cuts the animals, and then God knocks Abraham out, sets him on the side, and God passes through the bloody mess. And God says, may I become a bloody mess if I don't keep my side of the covenant? And God says, may I become a bloody mess if you, Abraham, don't keep your side of the covenant? And we know that is fulfilled so perfectly in Jesus who says, I am God in the flesh and I'm becoming a bloody mess for you because you haven't fulfilled your end of the bargain, but I fulfilled it for you. And so the salvation and the grace that we have in Christ is a fulfillment of every ancient covenant that God ever made with man before, especially starting with this covenant with Abraham. So, so that's the covenant, right? And then there are signs as well. There are signifiers. There are pointers. And one of the stranger pointers is this thing called circumcision. So, so let's look at verse 9. It says uh, in verses 9 through 14, we get a little explanation here. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Um, the Greek term for this is called synecdoche. And what that means is it's a thing that signifies a complex other thing, right? Um, and so an explanation to this would be, if I am wanting to say something to married people in the crowd, I might say something like, hey, I want to talk to all of you with wedding rings on. Every one of you people with wedding rings, I want to encourage you to pray for your spouse and listen to your spouse and love your spouse well, right? But now there's, there's little technical problems with that because there might be some kids in the audience that are playing with mom and dad's wedding ring and they're wearing it, right? So am I really talking to them? Well, not really. And there might be some of y'all that don't wear wedding rings, right? It's a common practice in our culture, but it doesn't mean you're not married if you don't have a wedding ring, right? So, so there are some, some technicalities where we recognize, yeah, the, the sign is sometimes called the thing that it signifies, but it's not ontologically, sorry for that word, but it's not exactly the same thing as the thing signified, right? It is a pointer. We can talk about it as if it's the same thing, but it's not really the same thing. And that, that's true with circumcision here. So he's saying, keep this, use this, Make this sign. Use this sign to communicate about the covenant I've made with you. He even talks about it as if it's the exact same thing as the covenant itself, but we know from context, from Genesis 15, that God already made the covenant with Abraham. Now he goes on, and he says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So here's the medical part of this, right? So what is circumcision? For those of you that don't know, circumcision is the cutting away of excess flesh. You might even say unnecessary flesh from the male reproductive organ. So what does that tell us, right? Signs tell us things. In the ancient Near East, a lot of people did circumcision. Often it was a rite of manhood. Um, Often it was something for priests to show that they were kind of marked out and holy and separate. But here... In context, God is saying, it's a sign of this covenant. It's a sign of what I'm doing with you, Abraham. This promise that I'm going to save the whole world and there are going to be all these descendants that are come through you from what I'm doing in you and it's going to be about me showing my power and giving you a son that you couldn't have. 
So this is a, a reproduction-oriented sign. It's a fruitfulness-oriented sign, right? It's a sign saying God is setting you apart and reminding you that you can't do it, but he can. And so God is, is marking the bodies of all the men in this tribe, among this people group, showing them with his sign, signifying that he's powerful, he gets to name them, he's going to be the one that makes them fruitful. He's the one that brings the blessings in their lives. So he's giving them the sign. He's giving them a tough sign. It says, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. That's great. They didn't remember it. But he also goes on. It says, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So he's saying, this is really serious. So I spent some time to say, it can be separated, right? And we can say, he made the covenant, he displayed his power in Genesis chapter 15. Now he's saying, this is the response that you should have. And if you're not responding to my covenant, you're not really in my covenant. And we would say the same thing. We would say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus came to save you. And you can just kind of abstractly know that as a fact floating in space, or you can respond to that in faith. Do you trust that? Do you respond to that? Or do you just go, eh, it's, it's a thing out there and it's separate from this, you know, the sign? You know, do you rationalize that? Or do you go, no, I'm going to wholeheartedly respond and entrust myself to that reality? I don't encourage you to have the same response. It goes on if you skip down to verses 22 through 27. Again, we have this kind of repetition. It tells some of the stuff twice. Verse 22 when he'd finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, 13-year-old, and all those born in his house or born with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. I hope you all feel the gravity of this. Um, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with money with a foreigner, were circumcised with them. Helping us feel the gravity of this. This is a serious deal. This is a painful operation, right? I mean, this, this was rough stuff. This was them being willing to, in a sense, pick up their cross and follow God. Right? Okay, God, we're going to do what you say. You've made this covenant with us. You're going to trust. You're going to be someone we can trust. You're going to be the power that saves us, that we can follow, and we're going to follow in these hard ways. My question is, is God, does God ever ask you to do hard things when he's asking you to follow him? Or have you fallen for kind of the American misunderstanding of the gospel that trusting God is really just intellectual assent and everything will go better for us and life will be easy? There's kind of this consumerism that is blending with our understanding of the faith. Right, a consumerism where we can just kind of make ourselves happy and get just enough Jesus sprinkled into our life to make ourselves feel better, but it's not really going to cost us anything. It's often very difficult to follow God. He often asks big, heavy things of us. And I would argue it's worth it, right? We don't want to get into the flip side, right? There's this one ditch of prosperity gospel where we're like, if we, you know, if we just trust him, we'll be rich. The flip side is God just wants us to be miserable, right? That's the other side. We sometimes call that the poverty gospel where his whole goal is for us to be miserable and in pain 
Well, that's not it either, but God calls us to do hard things as we follow him, and I think this is an example of that when we look at the covenant signs and we look at how quickly they obey the covenant signs. So a covenant sign is a visual that displays the truth of the covenant, right? Um, A lot of commentators might argue there's maybe other things you could say. I tried to give you a little summary of what I believe this sign points to, Um, but one thing that I think is really important for us to remember that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4 is Paul really emphasizes that it wasn't the covenant sign that saved Abraham. It was God. So the way Paul says that is Abraham was justified, that means made righteous, made um, pleasing to God apart from circumcision. And so again, I think it's helpful. We want to follow, we want to do the signs that God gives us to do, right? We want to obey, we want to do what God's told us to do, but we also want to recognize that we're saved because of what God has done. And anything we do, any sign that we display about God is for the purposes of pointing people back to God. It's for the purpose of saying, look, look at what God did. It's not for the purpose of displaying our strength or our power, but it's for the purpose of pointing people to God and his power. So any sign that we wear in our body, in our life, anything that we display, anything that we talk about is to point people back to him. And again, Romans 4 is where you can go for that, where it's clarified that no, Abraham was made right with God because of what God did, Abraham trusting in him, the open hands of faith, God declares him righteous, and then the sign comes later. So what are other signs? An obvious sign for us to think about is baptism. Baptism is a sign that we practice today. I'd encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're trusting in God's power to save you, to give you a new name as a son of God, but you haven't been baptized yet, I'd encourage you to take that step. That's, a, that's an important next step to display with a sign the covenant that God has made with us. And so there's some similarities between circumcision and baptism as, as a new sign. They're not exactly the same. There's some differences, right? Um, baptism is a sign that points to washing, right? We're, we're sinners and we have our sins washed away. Baptism also points to, we're told in Colossians, death and rebirth. The old us has to die with Christ and be raised to new life, new resurrection life with Christ. And so those are two things that we're told in the New Testament that baptism signifies. There are other signs, or I might say there are other visuals in the New Testament of what it means to be in covenant with God. And I think one of the best illustrations of this is the word fruit. The word fruit, right? So if you're in covenant with God, there will be signs that you display to point back to that covenant of what God's done for you. And if God has changed your heart, the root of your life has been transformed, then you will bear fruit like a good fruit tree. Jesus says this in the New Testament. Good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And then this fruit analogy is carried out in a lot of other places in the New Testament. I have a picture here of a fruit tree. Um, Those of you that are from Texas, you've probably never seen this. This is an apple tree, okay? They grow up north and other places. Uh, So I was intrigued by that. Grabbed this picture. I was like, wow, an apple tree. I'd love to see one of those someday. Um, And so that apple tree has roots that go down on the ground that you can't see, that you don't know about. But you know what's going on in the roots. You know at the bottom that it's healthy because it's making apples, right? Jesus said, yeah, that's how it works. Our spiritual life works the same way. So we can, again, we can separate covenant from sign and say it's all about what God did. That's where the saving power is. But we should display these signs that point to it. And we can say with a tree, it's all about the root system. That's really what, what matters, 
But if the root system is healthy, there will be fruit displayed on the outside of the tree. So the New Testament writers do the same thing with us. They say if if we're healthy, if we have a restored relationship with Jesus, there will be fruit in our life. There will be fruit. Again, it's not a fake thing. It's not something you can even attempt to fake, right? You can't go, I'm unhealthy, but I'm going to go like glue some fruit on myself and fake that, you know, I'm healthy. No, God loves you. He's transformed you. And because God has loved you and transformed you and saved you and made covenant with you because he's the one that became the bloody mess for us, that changes our heart, transforms as we begin to love other people. So, so here's just a few of these verses that talk about this covenant sign of fruitfulness. Colossians 1.10. Colossians 1.10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's just, just one of them. There's a bunch of them in the New Testament. It's saying when we do good things, that's fruit that's coming out of our life. Again, it's not us tricking God into loving us. It's us doing good things because we believe God has shown good to us. Here's another one, James 3.17. James 3.17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Again, it's this idea that goodness and kindness and character is a fruit flowing out of a healthy life. We believe that healthy life is essentially God reconciling us to himself because of his power, because of his grace, because of his kindness to us. And then finally, this is one probably all of you know, Galatians 5, and 23. It's one I memorized when I was a kid, but I memorized it in the NIV, so I'm going to read this in the ESV. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit throughout Galatians, actually Galatians, Paul he, he uses the Abraham stories a lot, right? Abraham says, when Abraham, or, God, or Paul says, when Abraham was relying on his own power with Hagar and Eshmael, that's like us using the law and religion to save ourselves. But when God just had to, when Abraham just had to wait on God, that's like the Holy Spirit transforming our lives, renewing us from the inside. And then Paul kind of gets to the end of Galatians here and says, this is what the Spirit looks like in your life. If you want to know if people have the Holy Spirit, Ask, do they love people? Is there joy? Is there kindness? Is there goodness? Is there self-control? Are these things at work in their lives? And that's, that's the fruit. Those are the signs. Those are the signifiers of God's transformation in our lives. My question for us, my question for me is, am I displaying that fruit? If I'm not displaying that fruit in my life, I think the answer is not, again, gluing fake fruit on, you know, like just faking it until you make it, just trying to be more fruity or more kind or whatever it might be, I think we have to go back to the root. And again, the root in context here is the covenant that God made with Abraham where he says, I'm the God that's going to take the covenant consequences. I'm the God that's going to pay the price for you. Again, we understand that most clearly in Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of who God is. In Jesus, we, we see who God is. We see that we can be born again. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of the flesh or a husband's will. Again, I think that's part of the sign of circumcision. But born of God. Because of what God is doing for us in Jesus. Giving us 
new life. So if you see the fruit missing, we need to go back to the basics. We need to go back to the root. Go back to, again, gazing, looking, staring at God and his goodness to us. Well, as we think about the drastic measures that God was willing to go through to show his power to Abraham, um, again, sometimes we think we have it bad in our walk with God. I don't, I don't think we had it this bad, right? None of you, most of you won't even make it to 99 or 100, right? God slowly, slowly, slowly taught Abraham to trust him. Hopefully we'll learn a little more quickly to depend on him. Uh, when my wife and I took those drastic measures of getting married, making public vows, giving each other covenant signs, these rings, we realized that we really didn't know what we were doing. Uh, I know probably a lot of you could testify to that. Yeah, I got married and I didn't know what I was doing either. Um, we were, it was 23 years ago, so you can do the math. We were like six at the time. And so we were especially, uh, especially aware of our weakness and our inability. Uh, we also were aware that we hadn't seen an example of what covenant faithfulness in a marriage looked like. We didn't, we didn't know what that was supposed to look like. We both come from broken families and broken marriages, and we just didn't know how to do this. And so we entrusted ourselves to God, and we, we etched on the inside of these covenant signs, got this verse, I can still see it, it hasn't rubbed off yet, that's 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19 was just one verse, you could probably pick a lot of others as well, but this was a verse that reminded us of the drastic measures that God had gone to to love us. And that was the only thing that was going to enable us to love others. The, the verse is, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And that's what I would want to leave you with. We had a lot of, a lot of territory to cover. Sorry it was so long today. But let's just end here. Believe, trust that God loves you. And prove that in Jesus. He loves you. And because of that, we can love others. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship. God, thank you that you love us. You loved us so much that you came after us in Jesus. You took our sin upon yourself. You give us your righteousness as a gift. You delight in us. You love us. We're now your children. We thank you. We pray that you would remake us, that you would change us, that we would really believe the drastic measures you've gone to to, to love us, to make us your own. And as a result of that, we would, we would love others in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.